Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 102, and today it's all about learner variability. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Perez, and I'm a teacher who codes. So Kelly, it's pretty uh it's pretty nice. We're actually getting back in the swing of things and recording, you know, uh <laughs> Two episodes in two weeks. I feel like this is, uh, you know, back to our normal normal routine. It is incredible. It is incredible. And uh, you are doing well at reminding me um, to get up and get recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're making good progress. And, and it's nice now while, you know, you're on break and things are a little bit slower here at the end of the year. We have a chance to think and be reflective and also a little bit more flexibility in our schedules to get together and actually record. It is kind of nice, and it's that that little downtime where we 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 were in the past would shut down and kind of relax, and now I think this becomes our relaxation is this recording, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know I look forward to it. So I do too. Why don't we Why don't we just jump right in with wins of the week and and keep things moving? Sounds good. So, what's your win? I went first last time. All right. So so my win this week has been that I've been writing more Python code lately, and a lot of it has been the opportunity to work on some, I don't know, some of those projects that you never get to during the rest of the year because it's not a priority. It hasn't bubbled up your list of things to do. And so right now it's really quiet. The end of the year is here. We have a change freeze, so there's no no releases of of new code. So it's a chance for me to spend a little bit of time going back and working on projects that are just kind of fun and interesting and I've always wanted to do throughout the year. So I'm working on some uh, integration projects, a little bit of an event-driven architecture for when things happen in our system, then other code should run. And so I'm working on something that if we have a security issue that get, comes up from our security scanning tools, that we can create an issue in GitHub automatically for that and, and be able to start working on that issue. So it's kind of cool to have these little things pulled together because it's a lot of manual steps that we haven't really done uh, you know, that well or that consistently, but if we can automate it, it will happen all the time. That's really cool. And you love that automation thing. It's the, it's the best. My, my project earlier in the week was automating, uh, some GitHub actions so that when we release uh, new versions of Terraform modules, it automatically tags them with a new version number, generates the change log and release notes, and even like pull some of the comments from, the uh, issue descriptions or the pull requests that are included in that release. So pretty excited about that coming together because it's just things that make our lives a little bit easier and a little bit smoother. I need that. I need some automation. I started doing uh, a lot of things on GitHub and doing my own, I get, what are they called when they're like my personal commits? When you commit to a change on your own project, maybe we should have like an automation. So it commits every, uh, every 30 seconds. So I don't have to write, because I have been trying to be very thorough with constantly saving quickly and often. And uh, yeah, writing those commit messages. This is another main. <laughs> this is an add-on <laughs> to my main. I know it's not the proper way of doing things, but it's all just in the practice. Well, and I like commits when they actually cause action, make it more rewarding to run a commit. So I don't know if that made sense, but... <laughs> I noticed that I'm making more commits because it triggers test runs of our Terraform pipelines, uh, which is useful to be able to see if it's working or not. So you'll see more of those commits happening and they seem to fit well around. I've got this piece working. I'm going to commit it and test it. Um, so anytime you can add automated testing to your pipelines or your commits um, after they run, it's a good way to keep things uh, frequent and uh, meaningful. Very cool. Very cool. Well, 
How about you? Um, yeah. Well, if you follow my LinkedIn, you'll know that I've passed four weeks of my uh, boot camp, um, and I have successfully and hopefully never again committed and finished a VBA script after uh, about two weeks of having nightmares and dreams about why I couldn't get things to run and waiting, you know, 10 minutes for every time my script was running against this uh, big data. And I remember talking to you going, oh my gosh, I just can't, I can't do it. And you're like, Let's send it. And I never did. And I woke up one night in the middle of the night, probably about 1am. And I was like, oh, oh, I did something to my variable. And I did. I dimmed it as a long and it was supposed to be a double. And if you don't know what dimming means, don't worry. It's horrible. And thank God for uh, data types that are, um, are would not call it inherited in Python, but given based on based on what you type. It's a lot easier than having to figure out which variable you're doing and longs and doubles and integers. And don't ask me to explain because I don't really understand that much. But yeah, I fixed it. <laughs> And I solved it and it works <laughs> and a million pieces of data points have been scripted and filtered and calculated. And yeah, it was impressive. So that was Good. huge. Good. It does make you appreciate all the nice, nice little features of Python when you go back to it. And after working on a language that's maybe a little bit more strongly typed or has some, uh, you know, more old fashioned or less convenient mechanisms for doing things. It's nice to go back to Python where things just feel easy. Yeah. In my reflection, I was saying, you know, if you're complaining about Python being slow, try running <laughs> VBA <laughs> and forget about indentations. You hate those indentations. We'll try reading a VBA script if you don't put indentations in. So there's a lot of exactly. things that I learned to love about Python even more. So it's nice. pretty cool. Nice. Well, it sounds like you've had a lot of learning to do over the last four weeks. I've had a lot of learning uh, over the same time frame, you know, a lot of new things, a lot of things I'm trying to do and expanding. And it, I think it fits really well. You sent me this article about learner variability uh, that really kind of fit my brain and my mental model of how we learn things and also how we teach for a variety of learners. So why don't we jump right into our main topic and start uh, start discussing and figuring out what does this mean? Uh, absolutely, because I think this hits the nail right on the head for both of us about the average learner. <laughs> the myth of the average learner, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. The myth of the average learner. And this article came out in um, October of 2022. And it, when I was sitting there reading it, I was like, oh, my gosh. That's us. <laughs> we know that. It's out from uh, what, digitalpromise.org, I think, is the the publisher. I believe, yeah, Digital Promise, promise correct. And it's yeah, like, so it's oh. a it's a PDF guide. I think it's about 15, 20 pages of uh, summary information um, and description. But they also have um, you know contact information here. It, the guide was created by Jessica Jackson, um, and it's. She got a lot of support from the Learner Variability Project and the larger Digital Promise team. So I'm, I'm looking at the, the credits here. But the uh, Learner Variability Project is uh, part of this Digital Promise, and it's really designed about how to teach effectively with a variety of different learners and a variety of different approaches. Um, and I, I think this really fits because it, it mirrors a lot of what I experienced, especially as a new teacher, trying to figure out how to reach as many students as possible, how to engage as many students as possible, right? Absolutely. Um, so what's the, what's the basic premise? Like what is learner variability? 
Yes. Well, let's think. So um, first of all, this article, I think, was meant uh, written with a math English mindset. So let's put that on the pay on the on the front page here that it's not really meant for the computer science. But, you know, like us, we like to apply everything in computer science because it's the most important thing, uh, most important <laughs> subject in the world. But um, it's just going into the learner variability that there is no such thing as an average learner. There's not um, there's not this one size fits all for every child or every adult learner. Um, and that our experience in life, our environment, everything that we feel about learning um, has an effect on our readiness, our ability to learn and accept new information. And it's just recognizing that every person, every student, every learner has this unique set of um, strengths and abilities that just impact the way that we learn. Um, there's a lot of learning science about that, a lot of support that that this learner variability exists, which makes sense, right? We're all different. So we all learn different. So we can't say everyone's going to learn this way. Everyone's going to remember this way. Everyone's going to apply what they learn this way. So that pretty much. Right. But, but um, that sounds a lot like learning styles, right? Mm -hmm. Like that sounds like that, that whole concept that each person has a different learning style. Like I'm an audio visual learner or I'm a kinesthetic learner or audio only or visual or whatever, or textual or like, how is this different than that learning styles idea? Well, it's not saying that we learn in a specific way. It's just saying that we are different, right? So there, there's not really this learning style myth and it goes into it that that we do have like a general three ways of learning, right? And there's a different modality of it, but we learn through all three ways. We don't just learn through um, um, doing or listening, but we do it through all all levels, but we just do it slightly different. <laughs> well, it, and I, well, as I was reading through this, and, and I'm kind of setting you up with questions here, but as I was reading through this, it was really saying that we should be employing and learners employ a variety of methods at different times for different contexts, different applications. Um, so to to pigeonhole yourself or to say, oh, I learn best when I'm on when I'm listening means that you might be closing yourself off to other opportunities, right? As mm -hmm. you learn or a teacher who says, well, all of my students learn really well, audio, you know, an audio sort of way. So I'm only going to present audio. This this is saying that there's variability both between learners, but also within learners, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of interesting to see how as this is um, going through and talking about the various um, you know, learning approaches or learning factors that it's not saying you have to do it one way or that there's a, a locked in way. It's everyone is different and everyone can be different at different times and in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it goes in through this, this article is really nice. And I really, I like taking it apart because it talks about ways to design the curriculum for the learner. And it goes through a series of steps. And one of the first things it talks about is designing for that whole learner. Right. And this, this is what we've said in the past, like get to know your, your, the people that you're teaching to it, you know, Johnny sitting over in your classroom is completely different than Sarah who's sitting in your classroom and they have different backgrounds. They have different, um, social, emotional, I don't want to say issues, but different social, emotional learning inside. Um, 
there's a lot of things that change that person. So you're designing for everybody. And this is hard, right? You're designing into a fully differentiated classroom, expecting to teach a wide spectrum of learners. And pretty much that sums up the life of a teacher, right? You, you literally have to know who your learners are. And you can't just say, okay, this person is my math person who does this, and I'm just going to design my entire lesson based on that. So it's about designing for the whole learner, for every learner, and um, trying to find those connections for that student. Well, and it's interesting as you look at this, I mean, they have this whole idea of learning factors, which really stood out to me as something that maybe intuitively made sense, um, you know, without being ex articulated, um, you know, uh, explicitly, I guess. So looking at this, it's really talking about like what factors go into or contribute to the effectiveness of learning. And they've got this broken out to your point between math and literacy um, here, but they also have like an adult learner factors as well, which is kind of nice. So this includes things like metacognition, right? Or auditory processing, attention. Uh, it has um, their background, right? Like how well do they hear? What's their physical well-being, um, sleep? So like you can see where a deficit in any of these areas can affect other factors as well. So if you're low on sleep, right, maybe your emotion is also suppressed, right? So you're not as engaged and not as excited about what you're learning or your attention span could be lower because you're drifting off all the time or your speed of processing is inhibited. So what's really cool about this navigator that they created is that you can you know, hover over any one of these factors and see how they are um, connected with other learning factors as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of nice just to put this into context of when you're starting to design your curriculum. So if we're talking about um, designing for every learner, it's actually thinking of that wide spectrum and trying to go from side to side, you know, if, and, and I think a lot of teachers do this. I think um, if you read this article, you're like, yeah, yeah, I do that. But it's now going into more of a cognitive science approach and talking about this targeted approach of teaching. And you want to say, and I think we do this a lot is I'm teaching to the kid that really, really hates computer science, who doesn't get it, who's really going to be hard, you know, it's going to be hard to connect to. It's going to be that person that just comes in with that mindset as I can't code and I can't do math, I can't do this, to that full other side of the spectrum who is like that total um, nerd in the background who's like coding constantly. And you're like, no, no, we're still just doing lists. Stop coding ahead. <laughs> so you're having to design at these margins and really build an understanding for that whole child experience in your classroom. And I don't know about you, but it's hard. <laughs> well, I mean, this is, it's definitely hard, but if you think about it, it really makes sense um, because if you're designing for the average student, right, this mythical average student that's right in the middle, that's kind of average at comprehension, average at intuition, average at average, 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 right? What you design is going to be average. Mm -hmm. But if you're designing for the margins, you're designing for those really kind of exciting uh, edge cases where people are more engaged or more interested. And I think the the common misconception is something that also happens in marketing when you're designing for, you know, communications or how to effectively reach someone. When you are you identify these kind of edge targets or the marginal targets on the outside edges of where your students live, 
you feel like people sometimes mistake that for being, I'm designing it only for them. Mm -hmm. And they're the only people that will benefit from it. But this is more like casting a pebble into a pond and that there's a ripple effect that occurs when you aim at the margins, it ripples out and it benefits people that are adjacent to those margins, right? And if you do that in enough places, what you get is this nice like effect where the ripples spread across your entire learner base. And though every student is more engaged because the effectiveness of what you're doing is much greater when you're designing for the margins instead of the middle. Yeah, and I think we had an episode, I don't remember where, and we'll try to find it for our show notes later, but where we talked about doing that learner profile, that student profile, figuring out who it is that you're teaching to, and that just goes into the to the basis. But now you're looking at the whole spectrum. Uh, right. The next topic that they, they talk about is uh, designing based on evidence, and I love this. Um, and this is not, again, something new, but it's something we all do. We try to get this background. Every great teacher goes out and try to get, try to understand this background information that your students have, like, where are they coming from? How much do they learn? What are the things that you like? And I think you did that one, that this really well, that one um, lesson where you were talking about designing makeup. Um, what was it? The, the video, the YouTuber who puts on makeup and you're like, yeah. The kids aren't really interested in coding, but heck, they love this this YouTuber, and we're going to bring this into the system. And yes, this wasn't hitting every student, but it was hitting a margin side of that classroom, and it was something that they could make a connection to, and it, it showed that you knew that those students, and you knew that this is going to make them um, learn, right? It's going to it's going to yeah. make them effective learners. So, and it was still relevant because we were talking about you know, algorithms and how they're step-by-step -step instructions, right? So it wasn't like I was going completely off script. I just happened to find a rather unique way of engaging them with how um, instructions are followed, right? The sequential nature of them or even branching conditions. And it, it worked really well in that particular case, but it was the only reason I was able to get there was because I asked. I asked my students, what are you interested in? Or can you think of an example of complex instructions that someone gives and they said well, well there's this makeup artist on youtube like okay let's go watch watch him do that right it worked yeah and it's that understanding of also their strengths and challenges and for a kid to be sitting in your classroom and you're teaching computer science and it may not be their favorite um, subject or it may not be something that they're good at but the fact that they can sit there and go oh wow my teacher really knows who i am or my teacher really wants um to make a connection and 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 do something that's interesting to me, that's going to help that learner and that desire to learn increase. So it's, it's just making those connections. We're more than just a, a person up at the front of the room regurgitating information. We are there to make connections and to, to help them make connections. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the enemy of good learning is not poor comprehension or poor understanding. It's boredom, right? Mm -hmm. Boredom is the thing that is the enemy of any good, good learner. If we can keep them from being bored, if we can engage them and get them excited, that's where the real learning happens because then everything switches on. Yeah. And that's what the next thing is. They talk about the design with the context. Um, you know, how do we make it so that there's like multiple perspectives. There's a uh, um, whole understanding of our curriculum, how it's, you know, everything is in context and not just some fizz buzz 
<laughs> what is it? Fizz buzz, uh, fuzz buzz. I don't know, whatever that is at that, that, that foo, foo and bar and yeah, you know. foo bar. Yeah. All that stuff. And it's something that we can connect to. There's different perspectives or something that's engaging. Um, yeah. So making, well, I thought this one was particularly interested because interesting because we often think about, especially the way that this was written, we think about the context of the learning in math is being very sequential, right? So, you know, this student is now in pre-algebra. Before this, they had like an honors math class that was more broad ranging, but next year they'll be going into algebra one. And so there's like this progression that's very well established and very well thought out. And in literacy, you have the same sort of thing. Here's the curriculum of like what the books that they're reading or the what they're writing. They've established a strong grammatical foundation, and now they're going to get into more creative or persuasive writing. So there's always this thought of, of a lot of context, which is relatively easy to do. I mean, I say relatively easy, but there is context in math and literacy that is more longitudinal across their entire or learning experience from their early stages in pre-K and kindergarten all the way through until upper school and even into college. In computer science, that's a little bit harder because not many places have 12 or 13 years of computer science. Mm -hmm. You know, this might be the very first time someone is writing code or thinking about their computer as more than something that they can just watch YouTube on, Yeah. right? So how do you establish and create that context or acknowledge that there really isn't any context for this within computer science? How do you reach out and design design your um, your learning with more context outside of those parameters? Yeah, and I think in the, also they go into the context of, um, which I'm trying to make a connection here, but one of the questions they say is, you know, what about flexible sitting? What about the learning environment? And is that, that environment a place where they can make a... Um, would have some sort of context in the situation. And I was thinking about this. I think when people walk into our room, um, still, it's still the same, is, you know, that ability for a child to be wherever, whenever, and for whatever they need, obviously in a safe environment, safe, not in a whatever, whatever, but a, a whatever they yeah. need in order to learn. And I think that's weird for a lot of people when um, they either come to observe or they see me in action still. I've got kids on, on the floor, kids up against the wall, kids in the seating. And, and their question is like, well, what if they're off task? And I'm like, well, then that's not in the place where they want to learn anyway. So if they're off task and they're uncomfortable, they're not going to learn. So it's got to be in right. that place where they have flexibility in their learning environments. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely the macro context, like the, in the big picture, where are they learning right now? What's mm -hmm. the context in the big way? But then there's also that micro context, like what happened five minutes ago that's causing their learning to be off? Or does it smell bad in the corner of the room where they're sitting and are they distracted by that, right? Like that context matters at every level. And so again, it adds a lot of complexity to understand all this context and be able to uh, incorporate it. I think the key is you can't do everything, right? You can't hold all of that in your mind. So you see what you can observe, see what you can gather in terms of information and understanding about the context and then do your best to adapt and adjust based on that new information. Yeah, absolutely. So 
one of the other. And I think this is particularly important in computer science. I want to keep bringing this back to like the computer science view of it, right? Um, Because when we're thinking about computer science, it can be a very, very internal focused, like, um, you know, using your mind to comprehend, think through problems, solve them. And context is everything in that case to be able to really have good, solid, powerful learning happen. Yeah, absolutely. And well, you know, going back to it then. So this question here, um, I'm skimming as I'm um, reading, um, talking, but I'm skimming this question. It's like when the student is perceived as an expert or offered a leadership role, how does that change their engagement? And I was like, wow, you know, that's huge, right? You have this person that is a leader, but if that person is always the leader in the class, then the people who are not leaders would not necessarily make that connection or engage, or they might engage with uh, the curriculum differently. So given that opportunity for everyone to be a leader, everyone to develop some sort of expertise in a certain area, um, definitely in change, changes their context for learning, their engagement for learning. And it goes back to the whole thing of, do you know your students, right? So if you see that child that's right. constantly constantly in the back and not really feeling like a leader or feeling empowered to learn, um, how can you change that? Yeah, it's um, also the ability to switch those contexts and get used to being in different contexts as a learner, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes you're in the learning context where you know an area really, really well, and you're just gradually or slowly expanding your the edges of what you know, right? Versus going into a completely new area that you know nothing about and having to create understanding and knowledge from scratch. Those are two very different contexts where one, you're acting as the expert, maybe teaching others or showing them. And then the other one is you are uh, you are a beginner. You're a noob, right? You're trying to figure out how to how to create that knowledge and having your brain be flexible enough to be um, successful in both contexts is a really important skill to have. Yeah. So another aspect is designing for powerful learning, and I and I've seen this in how you've taken on your new interns and just thinking about our own um, environment when we were working together was this powerful learning, this ability for learner agency, this ability to enhance that growth mindset that it's a lifelong learning experience. I think as a teacher, one, you want to demonstrate that you are that person who um, designed your own powerful learning environment where you're constantly learning. I told all the kids, I'm like, I'm taking a course and I'm doing it for six months and I'm doing it three days a week. And they're like, why? And I was like, because if I only teach you basics for the rest of my life, what good am I? You know, yes, you're going to be better than me in a couple of years, but I want to I want to keep learning with you. So I'm trying to be very student driven. I've got this positive you know, growth mindset. I want you to have that as well and and helping them to understand that um, these are the ways that you can use your strengths of, of learning more, or these are the times when your weaknesses might hold you back. How are you going to overcome that? And here's the feedback and the information I'm going to provide you to help you grow. A lot of stuff. Yeah. So many, so many things here. So <laughs> many things here to, to bring out. I mean, there, like I keep thinking about, about one student who was an eighth grader in my class. And at the beginning of the nine weeks, she said to me, you know, Mr. Tiber, I have, it's really hard for me to learn things like especially reading. I have to read something three, four, five times before I really get it and understand it. And so it's, I'm going to be really slow and I'm worried about that. And I said to her, I said, I think this is actually going to turn around 
and you'll see that this is something that's a strength of yours because other students may be used to reading things once thinking that they have an understanding of it and they move on quickly. So, but you're going to read for depth and understanding and your brain and your habits are already trained towards that. So you're going to actually see that this will help you learn things better and you'll be able to establish a really great foundation of knowledge that you can use to create much cooler stuff later on. I said, so this is really like a superpower. It's not a weakness. You really, I think you're, you maybe just look at it in a different way. And she came back to me at the end of it when she was working on her project and she was like, you are so right. Like, I really feel like I know this and I really feel like I was able to understand it in a way that I, I never understand anything. Like I'm, I'm good at this now. And it was like that powerful moment where she realized that something that she'd always viewed as a weakness was actually a strength if you were able to employ it in a productive way. Right. Yeah. And so those powerful moments, like that's a powerful learning moment because it probably changed the way she thinks about herself and the way she learns. Hopefully that, you know, goes to other areas of her learning as well. Yeah. I have to read this sentence because I have to quote this stuff. And I think this sums it up is, but it's like designing powerful learning calls on teachers to reconsider their role as content experts. And that thing is hard for a lot of teachers to say, I'm not a content expert. Kids all know I'm first to say that I'm not an expert in coding, (laughs) but I am trying. And um, it continues and shift to one where they become partners in learning. I mean, partners in learning, that's such a beautiful thing to say that I'm a partner, I'm here with you, and I'm a partner in your learning, modeling the skills and mindsets necessary as they empower students to explore their passions and interests. And I think that came um, that came out in one of the lessons we've done in the past, and I try to do it depending on where my kids are, is that demonstration of learning. I don't do it every quarter. I can't do it with every quarter because some students are just not there to do it. But I remember um, my... It was actually my third quarter last year where I had this these group of kids who were and so variable, um, but all very passionate about learning, very um, interested in learning. But one wanted to learn about pictures and one wanted to learn about graphs and one wanted to learn about TensorFlow. And I was like, you know what? We're scrapping the curriculum right now. We're going to do a demonstration of learning and we're going to all learn together. And they would come up to me and they're like, well, how does this work? I'm like, I have no clue. Why? Let's read the documentation together because I, this is so new to me. And it was that ability to just let go, not be the expert, um, be okay with the kids finding their strengths, be okay with who they were at that point of time. And it's that group of kids that are still coming back to me and they're like, oh my gosh, CompSci AP is so easy this year. And I'm, they're like, what we did last year was so hard. And I'm like, I didn't do it. You put it on yourself. You had that agency to choose that library. And that's, to me, probably the most powerful learning experience I've had as a teacher of just full on letting go for three weeks. Sure. I mean, it's, it's such a mind shift, right? It like, and I know I've shared this story before, but it was like my first job out of college. And I, my boss gave me an assignment. He's like, I need you to go build this thing or figure this out and, you know, come back to me when you got it about halfway figured out. And we'll see if that's, that's, uh, if you're headed in the right direction. And I said to him, okay, well, what, 
is this supposed to look like when I'm finished? What is the definition? How do I know it's right? And he said, I don't know. That's why I have you. I hired you so that you can go figure these things out. And I realized that that totally changed the way that I thought about learning because now it was no longer learning with some target in mind that the professor or the teacher had already created that I knew about or that I knew that there was an answer key. This is learning with no answer key. This is learning with no no right answer. It's what's the best answer, right? And and you're the one who gets to figure that out. You're the one who gets to create that. And so when you allow, empower students to do that, especially at younger ages, it changes the way they think about learning. And it's highly empowering because then the world starts to be things that they can go solve and fix and create and imagine and actually have the skills to turn that into something real. Yeah, 100%. Um, going on with this article, the things that just pulled me in and I was like, oh my God, I love this, is this whole these whole activities to reflect on as a teacher. And we do this a lot and... Um, I try to reflect as much as possible because for one, writing it down and reflecting and thinking about it helps it stick to my head. Um, in my head, I should say, not to my head, but um, in my brain. And just the reflection in general is great. And there's this activity where it's talking about you, you as a learner. Um, and if you're not learning, if you're not really taking that moment to recognize and learn more, then this sounds mean, but why, why are you a teacher then if you're not, if you're not a learner and there's this one thing is like reflect on how you are as a learner and what are your challenges. And just thinking about my recent challenges with, I remember I was text, I was in a text. I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to look at this other assignment out there online. And then I started to look at it and I was like, Nope, Nope. No, I'm not going to go there. And I did. I looked at it for a little bit. I'm not going to lie. But then I was just like, no, I'm not changing my code to, to, to fix it to this one. I'm going to go back and fix my crummy code. And it was, a, it, was, it was talking about these strengths. And mine wasn't of defeat, but mine was just like my could not sleep. I kept thinking about this. And I was just like, oh, this, 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 this I want to perseverate and it's not the right word, but this constant thinking about why is this a problem is driving me crazy and everybody in the house crazy. So who am I as a learner? I'm a learner that's not going to let go of things and it might be bad for my health. So how am I going to fix that? And just you're a, how, you're a tenacious learner, <laughs> tenacious learner. That's a, that's a very positive thing, but there are other kids out there. You know, it's that kid who's constantly looking at their grade, constantly seeing that they've got, you know, a 98 instead of a 97. And how is that affecting them as learners? And how can we help to, um, make connections and relate those strengths and challenges that you're having as a learner for that student. Yeah. You know, actually Daniel Chen is in the chat and he just uh, posted this here too. And I think this relates really well. It's like projects are the best way to learn for, for a lot of the reasons we've talked about here, but sometimes students don't see it that way, especially when they're hyper-focused on a grade. Right? 100%. And we've had episodes about that, like when the grade gets in the way of learning, right? <laughs> that that uh, the grade is should be an outcome of the learning, right? It's a, it comes after the learning happens, but students are so focused on the grades for a variety of reasons that they let that get in the way of their actual learning experience. And so I guess the, one of the questions to ask for teachers is what's getting in the way of your learning, right? Like what's the equivalent of that being hyper-focused on a grade that is getting in the way of your actual quality learning? I, I mean, I would like for me, 
I look at other people's code all the time, right? Like that's a literacy um, factor for me is looking at how other people have solved problems. And it's rare that I'm copying and pasting their code. Usually it's I'm trying to understand why they did things and how they did it, and then use that to inform the code that I'm writing. And so there's like, a, you know, some of that, the, the intellectual integrity is not so much about, oh, I can't look at other people's code. It's, I don't want to take a shortcut to my learning, exactly. right? And sometimes that gets in the way of your actual learning because it's not necessarily a shortcut it might be a way to help you quickly get the literacy because it has the context of the problem that you're trying to solve. 100%. I did notice something on this um, on this activity, the self-reflection for teachers, that I thought was interesting. It kind of changed my thinking about this approach overall is under the literacies area of this kind of Venn diagram that they've created. One of the questions that they have is, do you feel comfortable using a computer and navigating the internet? And that kind of digital literacy, right? That that technical or technology literacy is something that in computer science is very important, right? You can measure and assess someone's literacy in using the technology tools they have, whether that's their ability to understand a coding language or to have a coding environment that they can comfortably use to be able to create the, um, the code that they need to or the projects that they want to accomplish. And so as we're looking at this, I'm, I'm actually going to read through this again, but through the lens of like computer science literacy in here. And, and also, how does the math side of this also connect when we look at the learning factors and, and everything? Is it how much computer science is literacy based versus kind of math and computational based? Yeah. And I would say if you do nothing with this article except for look at this own reflection, um, then diagram you've you've done like a professional development for a year because I just just these questions alone and this one really um this one question really on the opposite side of the Venn diagram is something that really appeals to me is like do you find yourself anxious or stressed more than your peers and um no definitely yes me (laughs) constantly (laughs) constantly and it's not like I'm stressed about getting a bad grade or I'm stressed about um doing something wrong or I'm stressed about not uh, being able. It's uh, it's more of that imposter syndrome that stresses me out. Like it's I'm getting there and I, I'm really going to be learning this and I'm doing, I'm getting, I'm getting the, the problem solving and I'm answering with my breakout rooms. But then I'm like, oh my gosh, but I'm never as good as, and I'll say Daniel Chen, I'm never going to be as good as him with pandas. And it's like, you know, you put these own pressures and it's that own social emotional learning. And I, I just, and hopefully one day I'll be as good as you, Daniel. Um, but yeah, you, you, these, this self-reflection is huge. And I'm going to read one more, one more of the cognition is, are you able to multitask or quickly switch between different tasks that like I'm a hundred percent able to do, but finding myself. Yeah, the real question is, should you? Should I? No. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, what other questions appeal to you on the Venn diagram? Well, I, you know what I was, what I was interested in here um, and what I noticed isn't really available uh, or isn't on this question sheet, and maybe I'm, I'm missing it here, is this is all very much written in isolation. It's very self-reflective and focused on self and doesn't really talk about things like, 
what's your PLN like? Like how many people can you reach out to, to ask questions and get help? You know, Daniel just wrote in the chat, he's still learning things in pandas. And, and I believe that because there's so much to learn. There's always new things to learn. Um, but, you know, in, in our PLN, we could go to Daniel and say, hey, we're trying to figure out this thing in pandas. You know, can you help us out? And he might know it or he might be like, oh, I don't know that. Let me learn it really quickly, because for him, it might be just expanding a little bit of the edges of his knowledge. Whereas for us, we might have a lot more to grow in order to get to the point where we could understand that. So I thought it was interesting as you look at the self-reflection, I would probably add something onto this as well around like how much support you have, how much community do you have around you that can help you be a more effective learner? Yeah. We need to put that design for uh, PLNs. <laughs> well, they, they do have their, uh, their contact information at the bottom. Maybe we can, we can send Jessica a note and, and suggest some of that community PLN stuff. Yeah. Um, and after the Venn diagram, there is a, a whole self-reflection where you can go in and, um, do this um, scale one to five. You're consistently doing this. You need it's an unfamiliar idea, and I think that's really interesting. And not only does it have space for you to to mark um, your your scale one to five, but it has you doing it three times throughout the year. So really seeing how you've changed throughout the year um, going in there. So yeah, I yeah, I, I like article. that a lot. I like that a lot. It takes it from being point in time and a one-off exercise to being something you can track and hopefully see trends as you go to be able to see that you're improving in, in, across um, the areas of focus that you have. And one of, uh, I can't remember who it was when I tweeted, how do you learn? Um, or it wasn't even a LinkedIn. And some person said to me, case studies. Well, there's also case studies in here. So you have a couple of case studies nice. just to kind of read over and to help you think about learner variability. So uh, what yeah, a there's great a ton of, ton of links in here too, to other resources. It's a, it's a great article. I think we, uh, we need to send uh, Jessica some love on, on Twitter and via email and say, thanks for, for publishing this because it really brought things together for me in a way that I hadn't really considered um, or had been in a lot of different disparate places. It's all kind of fitting together in a really nice framework here. 100%. And there's also micro-credentials for those people that like to get them. So nice. We'll put that in there. Nice. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I mean, I think what, so what to do next with this, definitely read it over, but this is a great time of year to be reflective, to really think about and, and assess how you're doing as a teacher and as an educator. And, you know, for me, I've got, I've got some new employees coming on um, early next year. And it's a great time for me to look at it and say, okay, well, how do we make sure that what we're doing for onboarding and education is effective and working well? And, and so there's a good opportunity for reflection, I think, in a professional setting at this time of year, too. Absolutely. And with me entering in the third quarter, you know, third quarter is the longest. It's usually the best quarter because kids are settled and they're not either starting school or ending school at that moment. And they're just a... Um, a great group of kids at that point of time. So going in there and trying to get to know my kids right away, and I'm going to have to pick a goal for that quarter. And I think this is a good place to start. So we're good. For sure. For sure. So um, let's see here. So what else is uh, on tap for you for the rest of the, the break before you go back to school? Any, any major projects you focused more on your data science boot camp and staying ahead on that? Yeah, I have one more class before break, and I've already finished my um, my assignment that's due on the 9th, and I'm trying to get ahead, and I'm really digging into Jupyter Notebook. Love it. Um, 
I, I do miss the fact of going into collab and having everything in my drive and I'm trying to I'm trying to push myself to use my terminal or git bash or whatever he, they call it um, use that more but I'm just going to be learning and looking at SQL and look I'm I feel like a real coder for once I've been doing writing it's a lot and fun, right? I've been doing some stuff on my github it is fun I finally I felt like I'm finally going over that 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 hump so fifth year five years is a charm or <laughs> five years is a <laughs> well it's funny one of my one of my new co-workers posted on linkedin she took a, a screenshot of that git commit heat map that you have on your profile that shows you like how many contributions you've made every day for the last year and um she put it up there as a very aspirational post like here's where i want to get to in the coming year and I was both flattered and also kind of surprised because I've been in the middle of it. I hadn't really thought about how much I was doing over time. And to see all of those green boxes over the course of the last year, um, I think my this sometime this year, I think I had over 2000 or almost 2100 commits so far in 2021 or 2022. But my best previous year was, I think, like three or 400 uh, a few years ago. So this is definitely a shift in the way that I'm writing code and the way I'm getting things done. That's very cool. Um, one more thing on, and I don't know if you can still get into it, but I, I did get into the one of those other Udacity's um, programming for data science with Python. It's one of those scholarships and I say it with the air quotes because they lure you in this scholarship and it's a lot of people that get this scholarship and it's great and I love it. We took it for AWS. You and I did the same thing. But the hopes it's hard to get into the next level. And so out of the I don't know how many people, fifteen hundred or whatever, only fifty get into the next nano you know, the actual nano degree. So those of yeah. those people that are in this who get in, congratulations because it's a lot of work as well. Not just you know, that's just not a boot camp, but it's a learning on your own and a cohort of a lot of people on Slack. So if you haven't had the opportunity to check out any of those scholarships from Udacity, I, I recommend them because I love that AWS one we did. And this one's really cool about SQL and um, SQL and I forget what else. I'm only in SQL. <laughs> so I'm doing this alongside the, <laughs> my other boot camp. So my head's spinning. Nice. Nice. Um, I, I Other other updates for me, I did update um, an old blog post on our site um, about Colab and uh, not working with Google uh, Workspaces for Education. Um, it has been working for well over a year. Um, I just forgot to update the blog post. So um, Chris Perry from Google reached out and said, hey, if it's possible, could you update this so people aren't confused? So there's been a little bit of an update on that blog post itself if you found that and, and that's how you found it us. Um, Google Colab works fine in education. Um, it's a toggle control that you can use to turn on for your organization. Um, it's still a great teaching tool. And uh, I just wanted to mention that in case anybody was looking back at old blog posts. Um, not that we have a lot of them out there, but that one in particular has now been updated with a little bit of a, an update or new new news about that. Good. And and you made me remember, and I was trying to remember what it was about Replit. And if I tweeted it out, but Replit's making a lot of improvements. And I think, uh, oh gosh, what was the latest? I think one? it was like SH access or something like that. You SSH, can SSH into Replit. Yes, into GitHub. Right. That one, I was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, so that's huge. And the CEO, the owner, whoever it is, I forget who it is, Replit, the guy who's like behind Replit has really been a, doing a great push for education, trying trying to get a lot of educators in there. And they're always asking for any updates or feedback because to be honest, it's a great 
Replit's great. So no, it works. It works really well for quick coding um, sandboxes to get going. So always a lot of fun, and I'm glad to see that they continue to add those those features there. Yeah, and I had something else, but I think it just slipped my mind. So that's it. <laughs> Oh, follow us on LinkedIn. We're almost at 150 and then Sean can be forced to do LinkedIn lives with me. <laughs> yep. Yep. That way we can stream on LinkedIn also. So please follow us on LinkedIn. Um, I think we're, we're losing a few Patreon followers here and there. Um, like just, you know, p- normal people are, are um, figuring out where they want to spend their dollars. And sometimes we come up as a, a place where they can uh, save a few bucks a month. So if you want to support the show and you want to add back some followers and some and become a patron of the show, um, I will uh, put the link to the Patreon in the show notes so you can do that. Um, even if it's just a few bucks a month, it definitely helps out with uh, the running costs of, of doing the show. Um, but that is out there. Um, let's see here. I think that's it. Um, nothing. Nothing okay. much else to report. I just wanted to catch up on a few of these like little logistical things that have been happening happening around the show, um, and hopefully more announcements and more fun stuff coming next year in twenty twenty three. Yeah, twenty twenty three. Cool. Happy holidays. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> we're on the fifth night of Hanukkah. Christmas is a few days away. Especially if I can get this episode uh, posted later today, <laughs> um, it'll still be timely and relevant. <laughs> Very good. That's a goal for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I made it last week. We'll see if I can do it this week. Excellent. (laughs) All right. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off.